clearly visible beneath the sleeveless leather tunic he wore. His face was square, blunt-featured, lit by eyes that looked like shards of half-buried gold. Dark brows arched above them, the same hue as the golden-brown hair pulled back at his nape. His skin was burnished by the wind and sun. Gold of hair, eye and skin, he was easily the most handsome man she had ever seen. Indeed, he might have been a pagan idol cast in the fiery furnace of a master smith, but for the purely human touches that clung to him. He had gone long enough without shaving to have the beginnings of a beard. He smelled of wood smoke, sea air, and pine, a not unpleasant combination. Human, all right, all too human, too real, and much too close. He thought her a boy, thank heaven. In her frantic haste to escape, she had seized clothes Thurlow left behind when he departed for Normandy. They were too small for the twin, who had grown inches beyond her in recent years, but they fit Ricker with room to spare. Her form was well concealed, as was her hair, tucked out of sight beneath a felt cap. She had even smeared dirt on her face in an effort to conceal the softness of her skin. Still, she was not so foolish as to trust her disguise overmuch. It would not hold up to more than the merest scrutiny. The boy's silence and seeming docility surprised Dragon. At his age, he judged the lad to be about thirteen, he'd been a hellhound, spitting fire and willing to take on all comers, even if it meant being pounded into the ground. It was part of growing up in a wild and violent world. Where, then, had the boy acquired wisdom enough not to offer further challenge? The little cuss could bite, that was certain, but now he seemed too stunned to do anything but stare. I ask again, Dragon said in Saxon, presuming that was what the lad would understand. Norse was the dragon's native tongue, and with that he was understood by Danes and Swedes as well. On his travels he had picked up other ways of speech— so that he could converse with Franks, Germans, and even Moors. Languages came to him easily, perhaps because he loved the music of words. Why did you lurk in the underbrush and spy on me? He looked more closely at the lad, observing the good quality of his garb, made of finely spun wool and sewn too big for him, but that was not surprising. Children's garments were usually made with growing room. This was no peasant boy but a young lordling, likely to be in fosterage at a local manor. Why then was he here in the forest without companions and on foot? Essex was at peace on this sunny spring morning, a happy circumstance still fresh enough not to be taken for granted. Such tranquillity had been wrested from decades of war by the wisdom of the great King Alfred and the iron will of the noble Lord Hawk of Essex. That same hawk was brother to the Lady Kimbra, who was wife to Dragon's own brother, the Norse Wolf. The ties of family were further strengthened by genuine friendship, a fact of which Dragon had to remind himself every time he dwelled on the reason for his presence in Essex. For all its blessing, peace could not be counted on, and even a young boy had to explain himself. "'Why are you here?' Dragon demanded and because the lad had been tardy in answering, he gave him a good shake. Ricker's teeth rattled. 
Inwardly she cursed the poor judgment that had put her at such risk. If only she had remained still, not tried to escape, she might have gone unnoticed. Too late for such thoughts, and too late for much of anything, save a last, desperate effort to break free. There was something to be said for having two brutal louts for older brothers, and another, her beloved twin, who had taught her to defend herself. Don't hesitate, Thurlow had advised when he ignored her scarlet face and remorselessly continued his instruction in the finer points of self-defense. Give no warning and act quickly. Then for God's sake run like the wind. The pain, though intense, does not last forever. She had never made use of his teaching, for Thurlow had promptly informed the elder siblings, who were the bane of both their existences, that she was armed with knowledge they wished no woman to have. He had endured the beating they administered in retaliation, merely the latest of uncounted punishments, and laid plans for escaping to a better life. I will send for you when I am established in Normandy, he had promised Ricker. We have kin on our mother's side there, and I hear opportunity abounds. It will not be long. Not long, yet too long, as the flood tide of events overtook Ricker far sooner than either of them could have expected, and threatened to sweep away all hope. Terror filled her. She would never get away. She would be trapped within the fate her family intended for her. Anything was better than that. Absolutely anything. She still had not answered. Her captor was scowling. He looked unaccustomed to defiance. Mayhap this would be a salutary lesson for him. She took a breath, closed her eyes, and rammed her knee up between his legs with all the considerable force she could muster. The stranger stiffened. She looked up to confront him as he stared at her in blank shock. He did not, as Thurlow had assured he would, howl in agony. But he did groan very deeply, even as his hands fell from her. His legs gave way, and he went down slowly onto his knees, reminding her of a mighty oak felled by an axe. She was free, yet she hesitated, battling the sudden, overwhelming need to help him. Truly, she would never live to see Normandy if she entertained such mad notions. The impulse passed, survival ruled. Like the wind, Thurlow had said, and like the wind, she ran. Her legs were slim, but well-muscled. She had the grace of a seasoned colt, and used it to leap over every obstacle. Her breath was strong and steady. Having faced fear and escaped danger, she felt charged with confidence. After a while, convinced the stranger could not possibly catch her, she ran for the sheer pleasure of it ran and ran through shadowed glens and across sun-drenched fields, through copses of pine and oak and along shell-strewn shores. Ricca ran until finally, more at peace than she had been in longer than she could recall, she slowed and stopped. She was at the edge of a wood hard by the glittering sea. Wind rippled over the blue-gray water, turned silver beneath the sunlight. Gulls circled overhead, their wings scarcely moving. Ricker shaded her eyes, staring out to the distant horizon where sea and sky merged. Until coming to Essex scant days ago, 
She had never before seen more water than could be contained in a river or lake. The sea enthralled her. She was at once afraid of it, for she could not swim, and enchanted by the prospect of escape it offered. Somewhere beyond that distant horizon was Normandy and the chance for a new life. All she had to do was reach it. All she had to do was unfold her wings like the gulls above and soar into the sky. Such was scarcely less mighty a task than that she had set herself. Yet it made no matter, for the alternative was unthinkable. Ricca shook the thought away and gave herself up to the enjoyment of sun and sea. She had slept a little, and her stomach was empty. She was alone and without help in a land where she could expect nothing save to be hunted down and brutally punished. Yet for all that, she was swept by a shining sense of well-being as bright as the sunlight shimmering on water. She was free. When in her life had she ever been free, or even dared to think that such a blessed state might someday be hers? When had she ever hoped to do other than hide her true self behind a mask of endurance? Only with Thurlow had she ever lowered her guard, and even with him she had pretended her misery was less than it truly was, as she suspected he had done for her. Free! She flung her arms wide and laughed suddenly. To be still was beyond her. She had to move, turning around and around, laughing into the sky. Gloriously, stunningly free. However difficult the future might prove, anything was worth this single, exhilarating moment. Absolutely anything.